Father in heaven, we thank you that at any moment, at any time, in any place, even that place like here, right here, right before we preach, we can stop and come into your presence. The Lord Jesus Christ has become the greater mediator, the greater high priest. He is, through his finished work as the greater sacrifice, has allowed us into your presence anytime, anywhere. Lord, we realize there's such great benefits to that. Lord, most of the world does not have that benefit. They can't come into your presence. They're still under your wrath. But we, Lord, have a loving relationship with our Father through Jesus. And Lord, one of our requests is for those who suffer, Lord. We are to think about them and pray for them. Remember those from imprisonment to sickness, Lord, we are instructed in the Scriptures to do. Lord, we often are so consumed with our own selves, of our own health and our own well-being and, and all those issues that seem to walk with us every day, Lord, we sometimes forget there's other suffering. Lord, we know that all things are allowed by you, Lord, and you even use suffering. You've given us great examples of Job and many others. You use suffering for your glory and your refinement of us. But we are to pray for them, Lord, and we pray for those who are sick, those who are ailing from difficulties, Lord. We pray that first, Lord, if it be your will, you would heal them from those. We believe you are the great physician. But Lord, if it's not your will to heal them, we pray that you would give them joy in their suffering and cause them to turn to you during those difficult times. And cause us that are well and healthy, Lord, to remember them and to call on them and to minister to them. Father, we thank you for our church and just the freedom we continue to enjoy here. We wonder how long that will be, Lord, but help us not to be lax in our involvement, why we are so free to meet, Lord. May we constantly not forsake the assembling and gather. We know that our brothers and sisters around the world have already lost much of their freedom. They're under government watch, or in many cases, their countries or their villages are ruled by false religions that oppose their love for you. And so we pray, Lord, you would give them ways to meet and give them joy as they gather, Lord, as they put their trust in you. Lord, we want to look at your word tonight, and we want to be reminded that you sent the greatest high priest ever, you sent the greatest sacrifice ever, the greatest mediator, the greatest prophet and king to bring us into a reconciled and eternally reconciled position with you. And so we pray you would strengthen us today from your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Leviticus chapter 9 is our text this, this evening. It is the ministry of the high priest is the title. Um, but again, and like so much as we're studying, it all flows forward and looks to something greater than Aaron. I want to start in Hebrews chapter 5 to set the tone for this. We, we've realized, if you've not realized already, I'll tell you, we find a lot of our commentary to the Old Testament and particularly the law and the Pentateuch, the first five books, we find that in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a great commentary to that. So I want to start Hebrews chapter 5 and read a few verses there to set our minds to understand the text in Leviticus 9 through a New Covenant, New Testament position. 
Hebrews 5 will probably have the title in your Bible there, the great high priest or the perfect high priest, it might say. It is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is showing that there's a greater high priest. And the the book of Hebrews, as you remember, is all about the greaters, right? He's the greater prophet, the greater king, the greater priest, and so forth. The Lord Jesus is greater than that. Because man tends to want to go back to the lesser, right? We want to have our list of our rules. Um, We want to follow men really easily. In our fallen state, we fall into that. We always want the lesser of things. The book of Hebrews is teaching us there's something greater. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not want these Hebrew Christians going backwards. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins with this. For every high priest, it's a wide range from, from Aaron on down, every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and pertaining to the things of God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So all of the priesthood comes from men, Right? Well, that's not where Jesus is coming from. He's coming from heaven, and though he is in his incarnation, he's fully God, but he is fully man, these priests are fully of men. The writer is trying to help us get that down. Verse 2, he, this earthly priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself also is beset by with weaknesses. So he's saying this isn't a terribly bad thing. He, He understands what man is going through. Because he himself is only man. Verse 3, and because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sin. As for the people, now look at this, so also for himself. Because they're weak, because they're fleshly, because they're sinful, this priest from humanity, he must offer sacrifices for them because their weaknesses lead to sin and, and a lack of trust in God But so does the priest himself, because he is but man. Verse 4. And no one takes the honor, excuse me, no one takes the honor of himself, but receives it when he is called by God. And here we go, here's the tie into Leviticus 9, even as Aaron was. So Aaron did not come and say, hey, I want to be a priest. (laughs) No, it was God that did this. God called him and brought him to that position. He received it from God. It was a calling by God through Moses who hands off the the priestlyhood in our chapter in chapter 9 in Leviticus to Aaron. We'll see that here in a moment. Verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Here we're quoting Psalm chapter 1. And, and so the so also means that Christ himself did not stand up and say, I'll be that one. God himself chose himself, his son to be that high priest forever. He did it in his plan of salvation before the foundations of the world. And he recognized him even in his humanity here on earth as his son, the one delegated for this priestly, high priestly position. Verse 6. Just as he also said in another passage, you are a high priest, excuse me, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that ties to this eternal line, lineage of God, and, and not tied to man as we understood uh, Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Now, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, because Jesus did add flesh to his deity, right? He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. 
And he was heard because of his piety. And so again, that's most likely the night before his death. There he is in the garden. He's in his full humanity. Remember, our Lord walked most of the time fully in his humanity. He wanted to prove he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect representation for us. He would represent us as a human. And so in that time of his weakness of being human, without sin, he offered up, notice the terms here, he offered up, he, the writer of Hebrews is using Old Testament term, terminology to show us and help us understand the biblical role that, that Jesus felt, uh, filled as the, the ultimate high priest. So he offered up, his prayers and his supplication were even offerings to God saying, God, you alone can change this. You alone am I dependent upon. You can see this great dependency of the Son had on the Father as he offered up the sacrifice of prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety, because of his humility, right? Now look at this, verse 8. Although he was a son, now listen to this, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, the false teachers love these verses. They'll try to say that, see, Jesus was not God. He, he had to learn. He had to do all those things. And they totally miss, because they don't want to see it, that Jesus Christ was completely human. He added to his, incarn he added to his di uh, divinity, to his deity, he added flesh to that. He was born just like you and I, right? Born of a woman, born under the law, left in his humanity, was raised in his humanity, so he learned in it. He understood what God wanted him to do. He understood what his mom and dad wanted him to do. And he grew in his obedience. But without sin. He was perfect in it. Now, you know, this is such a beautiful thing because we have a Savior that is not, it's not we are not foreign to him. He knows us. He walked among us. He, he knows the, the weight of living in this world. He knows the darkness and the demonic forces. He, he, he knows the temptations of all things, yet he did not sin himself. It's quite a statement, isn't it? He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. You know, it's, I can't get my mind around this, but it's pure suffering to have to go from heaven to here. We're going the other way, right? <laughs> We're going to go from here to there, praise the Lord. But to come from there to here, that starts suffering right away, doesn't it? And our Lord suffered. It isn't hard to study what little we have of his 33 years, right? We have, we have a few early years, and then, then there's, a, there's, there's nothing but just pure obedience um, talked about of his life. And then all of a sudden, around the age 30, he comes on the scene, and he's perfect in all that he does. Now look at verse 9. And having been made perfect, this is a very interesting term. Again, false teachers love these verses because they like to twist them. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. Now, this made perfect understanding as a verb is just a tremendous word to learn from. God showed that Jesus, he just didn't send him at 33 and said, go die on the cross. He showed his perfection 
From the moment he was placed into the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, he showed his perfection from the beginning to the end so that we could have great confidence that the final lamb, the final lamb was the perfect lamb to be our substitute. And God proved that through the impeccability of his son. Boy, we cling to that doctrine. Because if he's anything else than impeccable, and in anything else than a proven, proven perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't go to heaven. I mean, and that's, in a nutshell, what Leviticus 9 is about. Good night. No, no. <laughs> you thought we'd get out of that. Let's go to Leviticus 9 real quick. All right. Oh, this stuff stretches me when I'm studying. This is a lot of fun. Leviticus has been such a joy to teach through. I never thought I would say that, um, but I'm enjoying it. All right, four thoughts in Leviticus here, chapter 9. The sign of a greater high priest to come, one, one through two. Now, now it came about on the eighth day that Moses and Aaron, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to them, take for yourself a calf, a bull for a sin offering and a ram for burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Well, here we begin to understand that now seven days have gone by. Seven days have gone by, and there is now going to be, we would say this, uh, a handing off of the torch in a sense. Do you remember, I don't know how you girls do stuff, but us guys, you know, we follow behind dad with a lawnmower, you know, or we ride on his lap or something. But there's a day, all of a sudden, where he goes, okay, son, here's the keys to the John Deere. You know, you've been waiting for this as a kid. I mean, you're like, really? I mean, really? I, I, Dad, you're going to let me do this? Yeah. And that's really what's happening in Leviticus 9. Up to this point, since Sinai um, and the arriving of there, God has been speaking through Moses. Moses really has been acting as both mediator and, in a sense, high priest in some ways. But that's coming to an end. Now Aaron is going to come, and the keys are being handed off to Aaron. And Moses is going to, after this passage, step back, not enter the tabernacle anymore, into the Holy of Holies or any of that ever again, and he's going to let the priesthood. And so he now becomes this uh, view of the mediator, and Aaron becomes the view of the high priest. And we see this happening. Now, over the last seven days, we saw last week in Leviticus 8, that they repeated the ceremony over and over and over each day, and they did it for seven days. Isn't that interesting? Seven is such a a biblical number, right? We see it often used. It's often a sign of perfection. And so God has them do this seven days in a row, ceremony after ceremony, all five sacrifices, one, two, three, every time. Um, they feast with the Lord. They don't leave the courtyard. They stay there the entire time. And now it's the eighth day, you can see in verse one. And it's time now for Aaron to begin his ministry. The mediator has been Moses. He's been teaching up to this point. God has been speaking to him, and he's been speaking to the priesthood. But now the sons, Aaron and his sons, God is going to speak to and lead all these truths through in the sacrificial system. But now the time has come to install him. And his high priestly work will now be an intercessory work of sacrifice for God's people. 
Notice in verse 1 that the elders are there. Now, this is important because you can't get two, or two to four million people. Most historians believe they're at that point here after coming out of Egypt. Probably two to four million people. There's still, but there's still a little bit of a mixed group in there, some Egyptians with them and other, other groups too that were there. But there's two to four million people, and the door of the tabernacle, the gate to the tabernacle isn't very wide. And so what I believe what the Bible's saying is God has the elders come, and the elders, remember, were given to Moses so that they could take the things that Moses says and tell it to the people, right? So there's elders from all the tribes. They're there at the gate. They're there to witness what God is doing and represent to the nation what God is doing through these priests. Now, there's another term here. After seven days, the priests are now, I want you to hear this term, they have been made perfect. Temporarily. So they have gone through this seven days of purification. Each time they washed themselves, they went and did all the sacrifices. Then they ate with the Lord. They fellowshiped with him. They were to meditate on all was going on. They do it over and over and over. And so in essence, temporarily, they now, Aaron is now made perfect so he can come into the presence of the Lord. And just like Moses taught them, it was Aaron and his sons here. They have the opportunity now to present the offering before the Lord. The elders are looking on as special witnesses so that they can tell the people with confidence, God has now given us a sacrificial system so we can get to him. Now, now don't forget, it wasn't very long ago, Moses was on the mountain, he comes down, and they're worshiping a golden bull calf. And they mourned over their sin as God actually slaughtered many of them for it. So you can imagine, they, they knew that this was difficult. Remember, Moses had to plead with God that I'm not going unless you go with us. So now the sacrificial system has now etched out a group of people, this Levitical tribe, this Aaron and his sons. They've gone through these seven days of purification. They've repeated the sacrifices over. In a sense, temporarily speaking, they're now made perfect so they can come into the presence of God with a substitute, the blood of a substitute for the people. You see the scene now? That's where the scene of Leviticus 9 is, and Aaron is now ready to go. So Moses as the mediator, Aaron as the high priest, these are clearly types that Christ is greater in, right? And Christ himself was proven to be perfect, we see that. And, and now you can kind of start to see what, what some of that terminology in Hebrews chapter 5 was about. You have Christ proven to be perfect. He was proven to be perfect. By the time they got him on that cross, by the time... God allowed his enemies to nail him to that tree. He was proven to be perfect. And we see that all through his life. I've mentioned some of these things. But he left heaven in a perfect way. He left, he left heaven to perfectly submit himself to his father. He was born of a woman, born under the law, and fulfilled that law perfectly. He was proven to be sinless through his impeccable, his impeccable life, and thus he could be the final unblemished lamb to take away the sins of the world. So the father bears witness, just like this is going on. These men had to go through this, through these seven days of seven 
days of completion, seven days of perfection, so they could be made perfect. So, so even so, the Father bears witness and proclaims Jesus Christ, his own Son, to be made perfect, to be the author and finisher of our faith, and the only one who has a source, who can give the source of eternal life. And so the Son proved his perfection and that he can save souls. See, if he didn't prove, if the Father doesn't prove that he's impeccable and the Son doesn't prove his perfection, he can't save souls. But because he saves souls, that also tells us that he was proven. He was unblemished. He has the ability to appease the wrath of God. So, so you and I know that Jesus saved us and the Father accepted Jesus Christ himself in our place tells us that God approved his perfection in Christ's perfect death granted us salvation. It's, it's a tremendous thing. I mean, this is, this is the gospel, isn't it? And so now he's proven to save our souls. He's proven he can secure them for eternity because he saved us, not ourselves. This is why the Arminian view is, such a, is, is really an unbiblical view because then you go, well, you did something to secure your own soul. The Reformed view says, no, we did nothing, we had nothing, we couldn't do anything. It was God, through Jesus Christ, who secured our souls because he has the power, the only one who has the power to do that. And so we remove ourselves from our ability of our fallen will to do anything like that. And we sit back and say, oh God, to praise you. So he has the ability to secure us for eternity. And he has become the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest, the perfect redeemer, the perfect mediator who alone can atone sins, and Aaron is a representative of that on earth. Now, look at verse 2 with me. And he, said to, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a calf, a bull, for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. So now Aaron officially takes the office. You can kind of see what's happening. This is the changing of the guard in a sense. And he begins in this God-given position as a minister to the people. Through his first sacrifice, right here, this is the first sacrifice, a sin offering and a burnt offering. A sin offering, atonement for sin, the burnt offering, uh, uh, given all to God, the burnt offering, everything was burned, nothing was saved for the priesthood, everything was to go to God. And he's repeat this over and over, and each time he offers for the people. And he's been doing this for the last seven days. He knows, he knows what this means, he sees the seriousness of it. I would imagine this was an amazing day for Aaron. He's been with Moses. He's, he's heard the voice of God. He's seen the power of God on the mountain. And now he's about ready to bring offering before him. What a trembling day this must have been for him. From this day forward, every gathering till Aaron dies, he would lead the nation in this progression towards the sacrificial system to get right with God. Now, Notice in verse 2, it says, take for yourself. So Aaron was again, even though he did it seven times, he was to take a sacrifice, do this publicly. Those little three little words are take for yourself. So God's instructing Moses, Moses is instructing Aaron. He says, I know you just did this seven days in a row, but you're going to do it one more time. With the elders looking in, you're going to say to them publicly, I need forgiveness of sin. I need to be reconciled to God. It was showing that Aaron was truly an earthly priest. And though he was a type, he needed, he needed reconciliation with God. 
Now, despite his need for cleansing, Aaron was also a forerunner to Christ in a lot of ways, wasn't he? Um, he, he was to continually, through his ministry as high priest, he was to continually remind the people that there's a greater high priest. That's his work, what he did, if he did it from his heart and did it right as God commanded to him, his role would be reminding people that there's a greater priest coming behind him. And so in a way, he's a bit of a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe you could say this, that John the Baptist was the one crying out of the wilderness. Maybe you could say this, and I hope I'm not on dangerous ground. Maybe, maybe what Aaron's job was, I'm one crying from the altar. Leading you toward someone greater. Look with me at John chapter 1, because I think we see that illustration in John the Baptist. Remember, he's pre-cross too. He is really, in a sense, Old Testament still. John the Baptist shows up on the scene. And they begin to question him immediately. He's doing things that others haven't do. Matthew records quite a bit more than John does in the beginning here. He's baptizing and he's preaching with great authority. And it doesn't take long for the religious uppity-ups to find him. Verse 19 says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites, Levites from Jerusalem to ask, Who are you? And he confessed. He said, I do not deny, but I confess I am not the Christ. The first thing out of his mouth says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. And then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And here comes his great statement. I am the voice of one crying out of the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is a beautiful text, meaning it is the Lord who can straighten the crooked paths. I'm here to tell you there is one who can straighten out the path. That's what I've been sent to do. In verse 24, now they said they, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ? Why are you identifying yourself with others? That's what the word baptism would mean nor Elijah, nor the prophets. And John answered, and listen to John, this is what Aaron was to do as well. Anyone who, who was a type, whether that be a Joseph or Moses or any types in the Old Testament, John answered and said, I baptize in water, but among you, <laughs> Jesus' ministry was beginning, among you, meaning telling us he was Jewish descent, stands one whom you do not know. And then look at this. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What a beautiful forerunner John the Baptist was. And as I study types in the Old Testament, we have to be careful with them because people start, like the Jews, they worshipped the types, right? They, they loved to worship Abrahams and Moses and Davids and so forth like that. They loved to do that. But they were to be types. And, and so when you look at this, you begin to realize they're a type of something greater. So Jesus is more worthy. Um, he's the, he is greater high priest. And Jesus is the one that will fulfill it. Turn with me to John chapter, I mean, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 7. Just go back to Hebrews real quick. Because now, from now on, 
throughout Aaron's days, you're going to see Aaron over and over and over. So it's important to understand what type he is pointing to. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. We'll pick it up there. So much the more also Jesus, right? The context has been these human priests and, and they fall short of this order of Melchizedek. They fall short because of their fleshly problems. But so much more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So Jesus is bringing in a better, a greater, a better covenant. Remember, Hebrews is about everything is better in Jesus. Verse 23, the former priest on one hand existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So what happened to Aaron? He died. And we'll see next week his sons die before he does because of their lack of belief in what God said. But priests died, right? Then verse 24, I love this, it's circled in my Bible, I'm looking right at it, but Jesus. There's a contrast here. On the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Now that's right there is got to be greater. <laughs> one guy dies, this one is forever. It's not hard to see that he's greater. And he's greater in so many ways, isn't he? Verse 25, therefore, <laughs> because he doesn't die, <laughs> because he's greater and holds his position forever, therefore, he is able to also save forever those who draw near to God through him. Well, praise the Lord. Isn't that phenomenal statement, right? The priest can't save you. And so many of our friends that are caught up in the Catholic world, they, they look at those priests as some kind of salvific measure, some kind of salvific way in order for them to get to God. And all religions look to some form of their church as the authority. This is why the Christian church, a church like Riverbend, says the elders are not the head. The congregation isn't the head. Christ Jesus is the head. He's the one that doesn't die. <laughs> He's the one who gives the greater gift of eternal salvation. He can save forevermore. Listen to this. Not only does he save you forevermore, since he always lives, here's his priestly position, to make intercession for them. Aaron is a type, but he's a very small type, right? But in all of Leviticus 9, you look at that and you go, there's something greater Aaron is pointing to. He's a forerunner to something greater. And that's why they had to do things over and over. And every year they had to be cleansed. And every time they came into the temple, they had to be cleansed. They had to do it over and over just to have a reconciled, temporary relationship with God. Until Jesus Christ comes and intercedes for us. Look at verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Look at the difference in Aaron and these guys. I mean, Aaron and his guys and his sons and so forth. And then, then Jesus Christ. We have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above heaven. How about those four thoughts? That's our Jesus. He's holy, meaning he's absent from sin. Remember, he was to be made perfect, meaning put on display from, from eternity past to his earthly life to every aspect and every aspect of eternity, he is perfect. So he's devoid, he's absent of all evil and absent of all sin. See why he's greater? The word innocent, and you go, why would he say innocent? 
Because everyone, everyone who's ever taken a breath, everyone who's ever been born, ever conceived, is guilty before God. He, he's showing the, the direct comparison to the earthly priest with Jesus. The earthly priest has to cleanse himself. He's got to offer sacrifices for himself, not Jesus. <laughs> he's innocent. He's completely innocent. See, it should bother us when the Lord's name is used in vain. We should be careful even with slaying of that. I mean, this is the holy, innocent Son of God, our only way to the Father. He's innocent of all sin. He's undefiled. Again, many of these words are very much connected, but to think of the word defiled. The word defiled is a is a grotesque word in our society, isn't it? That person is defiled. We would think of all kinds of things that would go along with that, but he's undefiled. He's pure, spotless. There's, there's nothing about him of any impurities. And, and this last one is so important for us. Now, now think about the sacrificial system. He's not only the perfect high priest, he's the perfect sacrifice because he's separate from sinners and exalted above heaven. You could read this. He's spotless and unblemished final lamb given to us from heaven. That's who Jesus is. Verse 27, back to the contrast. Who, Jesus, does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the sin of the people. Exactly what we're seeing in Leviticus 9. Because this he did once and for all when he offered himself. So he doesn't. He didn't have to go, wait a minute, before you crucify me, I need to go down to those pots where I created that new wine and the pots of purification. I need to go through a purification process and then I need to offer some sacrifices for myself and then you guys can nail me to the cross if you want. No, he went right to the cross. He went right to the cross because there was no need for him to be cleansed of anything. But notice the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. So when I say Aaron is a type, I do not in any way say he, he is perfect in any way. But he's a type to show us how God was going to bring Jesus Christ in this world and be that high priest who would bring us to him. Now, back to Leviticus 9. And let's go to our second point. We've got to get going here. The high priest was to present a sacrifice for themselves. Well, notice in verses 3 and following, Then the sons of Israel, you shall speak, saying... Take a male goat for an offering and a calf and a lamb, both one year old without defect for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil for today the Lord will appear to you. What a great promise here. Well, now in verses three and four, we start to see the nation is told to bring offerings, right? To bring, to bring all the offerings except that what's missing right here is the guilt offering because that'll come later um, it's not quite needed at this point, but, but that'll come along. So first they're to have a sin offering of a, of a male unblemished goat that, again, resembles the Lord Jesus Christ, much as um, Aaron, the priest, resembles that. And they need this for atonement. And then they, they need two burnt offerings, a calf and a lamb. And this shows their trust and worship in God, providing a way to himself. This is, again, a one-year-old male unblemished Next, they were to have a peace offering. And, 
in its fullest form displayed by an ox and a ram. He's showing the fullest form that they could bring their peace offering in to show that they're completely can be at peace with God and that God has provided a way to reconcile himself to them. And then finally in verse 4 you see this grain offering, this mixture of grain and oil that declares them uh, that their own personal it's a way of they don't cons- they consecrate them their own personal consecration before God their their thanksgiving to God for the sacrificial plan they they come to God to honor them with these grains and first fruit harvest and everything Aaron had done all this previously for the last seven weeks prepared him for this moment prepared him for this moment and after a week of separation and consecration to the Lord, he now sees the end goal. And what the end goal is, notice at the end of verse 4, is I'm coming to be with you. Now, you don't want to miss this. In the Old Testament, this sacrificial system was to allow the Almighty God to reside with sinful people. It had to be done over and over because they were sinners. It had to be done time and time and time again. But the ultimate purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ to come was so that we can be with the Almighty God. So you can see the tracks that are going on. This one, this one can't save you because man's weak. The law, as, as perfect as the law was, it, it failed in the, because man was weak. He couldn't keep this. But the goal of the law, you can see it right here said, the goal of the law is come to me in the sacrificial system that I provided because I want to come dwell with you. So do this. And we tell people the same thing. There's no way to get to heaven. There's no way to dwell with God except through Jesus Christ. Now, look at verse 5 and 6. So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of the meetings, and the whole congregation came near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Here it is again. Two verses later, says he's, he, Moses is saying, The glory of the Lord's coming. Do this the way he's told you to do this. Now, now remember, I think sometimes we think of Old Testament. The more I study the Old Testament, the more I see the beauty and the symmetry of everything pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that was in the Old Testament. If you're part of the group that danced around the golden calf <laughs> and everybody was involved, remember the Bible said in Exodus that the whole nation was involved with it. And by God's grace, you didn't get slayed in the plague that hit. And then you realize this holy God who we thought consumed Moses on the mountain is not happy. And, and, and now Moses is up there interceding with us. And from what we understand as Moses comes back is this God does not want to go with us. And Moses says, I'm not going if you're not going. <laughs> Remember that on the mountain? And so you have to think about this. this the joy, this isn't just all fear and earth-shaking stuff. There's got to be joy here as a, as a Hebrew who knows you're a sinner that God has provided now a way for me to have a relationship with this God on that mountain that seems to scare me, but yet I know I need that relationship. I know I'm rebellious. I know what came out of my heart, but God has provided a way. There has to be some kind of excitement there. And I'm starting to look at Old Testament saints a little different. Now, again, everything's flowing toward Christ, but I think this is grace of God. 
he could have very easily said, yeah, I'm done. You're on your own. But he provides a way. He provides a way. He provides a way. He provides a way. That's what our God does. And we love him for that. Look at verse 7. Moses said to Aaron, come near to the altar and offer your sin offering, your burnt offering, that you may make atonement for yourself and for your people and for the people. Then make an offering for the people that you may make atonement for them just as the Lord commanded. So once again, Aaron has to first deal with his own sin, right? Did you see that in verse 7? First, first make an offering for yourself. This is the problem with, with human priests, right? They're infallible. When my wife was growing up, she grew up Catholic. She said she remember going to a confession, talking to this guy in a booth. And she came out and thought, why do I have to talk to him? Why can't I just go to Jesus? The Lord was stirring in her heart already, wasn't he? See, he's fallible. And what the Bible is telling us, don't put your hope in men. They're fallible. Go offer for yourself, Aaron, because you're fallible. And doubtlessly, since the seven days of doing this, overnight, you probably sinned. So go offer for yourself and then offer for the people. See what he's doing here. He had to be made perfect. You see that? The priest had to be temporarily, please make sure, I'm going to keep saying that, temporarily, he had to be made perfect so he could offer the sacrifice for himself and for the people, carry that blood into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, handle all the other furniture that God has. He has to be made perfect because he's representing a greater high priest that's coming. It's beautiful, isn't it? When you start to think about all the detail God has in this. So Aaron's priesthood exists first and foremost for the glory of God. Then for himself, he has to, he has to offer sacrifice for himself and then for the people. So he is making, God is making this office of high priest of one who has great authority in one way. Because he's going to represent the people but great responsibility in another because he's human. Now, all of this is a foretelling sacrifice of a greater priesthood. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9. And then we'll move a little faster because there's a bunch of repetition in Leviticus through the next point. But look at Hebrews chapter 9 with me. We looked last week at the middle of Hebrews 9. This week we're going to look towards the end of Hebrews 9. And if you're ever going to study the Pentateuch, you just got to keep the book of Hebrews open. And then you just keep going back and forth, and it really helps you understand and actually enjoy a book like Leviticus like you've never have before. Now, verse chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the, for the copies of these things in heaven to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves are a better sacrifice than these. So, there's this shedding of blood. There's this cleansing that has to happen with these human priests here. Um, uh, and and it is a, it, it's, a, it's a copy. It's not the real thing. It's a copy of what God's intended better sacrifice is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. It's just a mere copy of the true one. See, everything's greater. Heaven's greater than the tabernacle on earth. And yet they worshiped it. So Jesus came in, swept it out twice. They got ticked off at him. 
And though it was representing something greater, they had begun to worship the earthly, the earthly tent of God instead of the God of heaven. And so he said, everything is, is lesser here on this earth than what is greater in heaven, but in heaven itself now to prepare in the presence of God for us. So, so Christ did not, enter this, uh, did not enter a holy place made with hands, right? This, this was the final lamb. He wasn't going to a, a, a tabernacle made of skins and poles. He goes right into heaven itself. And he presents himself, and look at the last little two words, at least in the NAS here, to present to God for us. I just have that all marked up in my Bible. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so grateful for the gospel. So wherever I read, I'm just looking for that. So he enters into this heavenly temple, this heavenly tabernacle, into the most holy of holy where God resides, and he goes into the presence of God for us. He doesn't have to go to the presence of God for himself. That's what Aaron had to do. That's why he had to do all the sacrifices for himself. He goes into the presence of God for us. This is why he's the greater high priest. Look at verse 25. Nor was it that he would offer himself often. <laughs> you know, we don't go, Phew. you know, you're going on 57 now. Maybe God better come back or Jesus come back. I mean, this is, he doesn't do this over and over. Aaron's not even installed and he's gone through the sacrifices seven times already. Over and over and over and over and over. And here on the eighth day, he's done it again for himself before he even does to the people. So the Bible says he doesn't, often, he doesn't do this often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Right? That's where Hebrews 10 is going to say the blood of bulls and goats could not, could not appease God. He wanted a body. He wanted the blood of his son, right? Look at verse 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Can you imagine how many times Jesus would have to die if he's the final lamb, but it doesn't take care of our past, present, and even future sins? This is, the, this is why we talk about the sufficiency of Christ's death. It was sufficient. It washed back to our, to, to our conception, and it washes forward to our last breath for all people. Now notice... He says, but now, middle of 26, but now once, now one, now, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I have that little phrase marked up in my Bible, put away sin. See, see this is why forgiveness of sin helps us live a redeemed life. If you either look at it callously, like, well, Jesus died for me. There's, there's a lot of Christians that say, hey, I'm going to get in one way or another. I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle, I raised the hand, I did all that stuff. Or, or your sin makes you take, takes you back to the cross time and time again and causes you to bend your knee and say, oh, God, I am sorry. That sin caused your son's death. I am so grateful that you have forgiven me. Oh, God, help me live for you. Help me stay out of repetitious sin because of the great work of your Lord. He put away. Can we say that, Lord? Maybe in a prayer tonight as you lay down, say, Lord, thank you for putting away my sin. Paul says, 
forgetting the past and pressing on for the upward calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are plagued by the past. They believe in a death and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, but they're plagued by their past sin. It just has total control over them. You go, wait a minute, are you a Christian? (laughs) Somewhere along the line, you have to be forgiven. You know, there's always somebody to remind you of that, right? And I, and, I've, and I deal, you know, we deal with in counseling people who have family members or something like that who aren't saved and they've asked for forgiveness, but they just keep pounding them. And eventually you just got to say, you just got to let it go. You just got to press on. Jesus is forgiven. He's not bringing it up. Somebody else may be, but not Jesus. He's forgiven you. He put it away. It's gone. Verse 27, you know this verse. And as much as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once... So he compares it. Look, man died once. That doesn't save him. (laughs) That sends him to judgment. But when Christ dies once, look what he's offered. He he becomes the bearer of our sins for many. And when he comes a second time, it's not for salvation, right? It's for those who eagerly await him. The second appearing of the Lord is going to be a phenomenal thing because you're going to be looking for him and waiting for him, not because he's going to forgive your sins. Again, he's already forgiven them. This is the great work of the high priest. Now, go back to Leviticus 9, and let me step on it real quick here. Verses 8 through 14, the imputation of sin and death of a substitute. Um, what, what Aaron does now, verses 8 through 14, actually 8 through 21, is what he's been doing over the last seven days. He's, he's, now, he's now repeating that for himself and for the people. But notice in verse 8, I just want to read this verse. So Aaron, Aaron came near to the altar. Remember, he's get, this, the previous is instruction from God to Moses. So now Aaron, now he's actually doing it for the very first time. I just want you to catch this. For the very first time, he's watched Moses go and dip the blood on the horns. And he's, he's watched Moses do all these things. Now, Aaron, for the very first time, and I thought about this today as I was finishing this, I thought, boy, what was the first step like? And he's just working his way to the altar. Now, Aaron came near to the altar. There's an emphasis here, as though he'd never been there before. He's come near. Now he's the one. Now he's the high priest. He's now taking over that position, that, that great type that, that he will uh, resemble Christ in a in a lesser way, and he slaughters the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. So the first step, he comes to the altar of God, this brazen altar with horns on the side, ready to take in all of these animals. It's covered with blood already because uh, his seven days of sacrifice have happened, and he's making his way there now to offer atonement for himself. And I would say this, this displays a tremendous honesty, tremendous humility before the people who are watching him obey God's instructions. He didn't say, well, Moses, I, got a, I, I think I got a little better idea how to do this. <laughs> no. He humbles himself and he does it God's way. And he comes God's way. And that had to be a humbling thing. Somewhere along the line, the American church started to put altars. Remember, you know, we'd sing, come to the altar, and just as I am, until somebody finally got pushed out and went down. Um, That was supposed to be funny. I grew up in your churches. And um, 
And they called it an altar, like you would come down there. And I, and I get what they're trying to do. And unfortunately, it, 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 it just, Christ somewhere got lost out of that. And it became about the person making some decision. And we miss it. But this is it. This is the altar. This is where the sacrifice is done. And so this altar represents a greater altar, right? A greater altar that's coming. There's a greater altar where someone is going to be sacrificed on that cross. And Aaron is making his way towards this thing for the very first time. And Aaron knew that before he could offer any sacrifices for anybody, he had to be publicly, he had to publicly offer one for himself. And so he identified himself as a sinner. I think that's a beautiful thing. And that's why pastors and teachers and church leaders should never put themselves out where they're some kind of perfected people. We too would go to hell just like you if it wasn't for the grace of God. So Aaron... He could not be an uh, instrument of of mediation between God and his people unless he had a right relationship with God, right? And so only the blood of this innocent lamb could pardon the guilt of the priesthood and the people. That takes you down to all the way through verse 14. And then in verse 15 through 21, now Aaron begins to offer for the people. And, And you'll see it just repetitious. He works his way through the sacrifices for himself on behalf of himself and then now in verse 15, he turns to offer for the people. Notice in verse 15, he said, And he took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, and slaughtered it and offered it for sin. Now notice a couple of prepositional phrases. For the people, there, he slaughtered it and he offered it for sin. Now, the idea is emphasized strongly here that Aaron, like Every priest among God's people must receive atonement for himself first and then so he could properly offer for the people. But this is, notice this word, offered it for sin. It's a humbling statement. This, this innocent animal, this animal perfect in form, right? He's, he is unblemished. He's, he's a baby, really. He's a yearling. We call him a yearling. When cattle are a year old, we call them yearlings or weanlings, they call them. They're just coming off their mother they're not that old so this innocent animal become who is imperfect in form has to now be sacrificed because of the sin of the individual that's imputing their sin on them because remember we went all through that that the priest would put their hand on and impute that sin to this to this innocent animal so all this is taking place and it is offered for sin so the bible teaches us that this animal was made Sin on behalf of the person. He was made sin. Now, Brian, Pastor Brian Giaquinto just read to us 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. You see what's going on here? So this innocent lamb, this innocent goat, this bull, this grain offering, all that, you go all the way through this stuff, uh, particularly but the lamb is, is it's unblemished. It's a, it's a picture of, of Christ, right? We see it really begin so much in Genesis 22 uh, with a, when a ram, a male ram, appears and instead of Isaac being sacrificed, the ram is a substitute, right? So here, it becomes sin. So in essence, this is what we say. The animal becomes the receiver of their sin along with the deserved death penalty. The wages of sin is death. So 
So it's made to be sin, so it gets the curse of sin, and the curse of sin is death. This is the gospel, isn't it? It's the gospel in the book of Leviticus. This is why Jesus said, it's all about me. He says, when you study the Bible, in Luke Luke chapter 24, um, starting with Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, and so forth, they're all about me. You see the gospel here. Last thought, four. The fire of God in in his approving presence. I just want to spend the last few moments on these last three verses. Then Aaron lifted up his hands. All the sacrifices done for Aaron. Now all the sacrifices are done for the people. It's a repeat of everything that happened in chapter 8 that they did seven times. Exact same things are happening there. And then we get to verse 22. This is the crescendo of this sacrifice on this day. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burn offering and the peace offering. He blessed them. Don't, don't miss that. I'll come back to that. Verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meetings. And when they came out, And blessed the people. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came down from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell to their faces. Now, Aaron's heart seems to be captured by God at this point. And I think this is beautiful. I think he has now grasped the great atoning work that this animal is doing on his behalf. And God is accepting the blood of another, the blood of an innocent one on his behalf. So I think as he steps and turns from this altar, he himself is most likely overwhelmed that God would provide a way for him to be right with him. And so he immediately responds by, notice that's in verse 22, turning to the people. And he's longing for them to feel, to understand the sense that he's probably going through. At that moment, he knows he's forgiven because he's come God's way. He's been reconciled through the blood of another. And he has this overwhelming sense. And he turns to the people and wants to bless them. He wants them to experience what he has done. (laughs) We love that, don't we? I mean, that's why we share the gospel, isn't it? Are you just doing it because you have to? Because you want people to know what you have, right? I think that's what Aaron's doing. They're all looking in the gate, right? They're looking at the door. He's right there in the presence of God, in a sense, offering this. And he turns and, and maybe blood still dripping from his hands turns and blesses these people because he feels and senses the forgiveness. See, eight days of washing, eight days of separation, eight days of consecration, eight days of waiting on the Lord. He, he now desires to identify these people humbly and bless them with God that they would understand there is a way to have your sins forgiven. You know what we did with that golden calf? You know that coveting in your heart? You know that lying to your neighbor? I mean, all, they had the Ten Commandments already, right? You know all that? You know how we feel about that? You know how we know we're sinners? God has made a way for us to be at least temporarily right with him. I think there was a great excitement. And again, I think this all points to the Lord, Jesus. J.P. Morgan, in his commentary, said this. He said, maybe Aaron shouted out this. May the word of Jehovah accept your sacrifice with favor and remit and pardon your sins. Maybe that's what he turned around and said. He sensed he was forgiven and maybe turned around and said, may the Lord do the same for you. Come his way. I think it's fascinating to get our mind around this scene here. The elders crowded in at the gate, gazing in to see what's going to happen. And they're going to have to communicate this to the millions that they go back to. 
they see that death has now pardoned the sins of the people. And maybe there's Aaron with the blood on his hands turning to the crowd and praising God and blessing them. Andrew Bonar, the old Scottish teacher, said this. He said, it was as if he was pouring over them all the grace and peace that would eventually flow from the blood of Jesus. See, it's all foreshadowing. And I think that's what Jesus talked about in so many times in the New Testament. It's all pointing to me. And maybe Aaron, they're dripping with blood off there. There's a way to God. <laughs> so what, shouldn't we say that to people nowadays? Shouldn't we tell people who are struggling in their sin and their difficulties, say there's a way to God. He's provided a way. Interesting, Jesus, after his resurrection, he meets with the, the guys up in the upper room he meets them on the road, and he's met them several times. You have to look at all the, the harmony of the Gospels. But in Luke 24, he leads them out, and he goes as far as Bethany. Um, it seems with the other accounts that he might be back in the garden, which would be just outside of Bethany. And the Bible says he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. I never saw that connection until today. It's finished. He lifted up his hands, and there were what? There were holes in them. And he blesses them. I'm leaving. And I'm not coming back for any more sacrifices. This one's enough. The next time you see me, I'm coming to judge. <laughs> what an amazing thing. And while he was blessing them, he departed from them and was carried up into heaven. It's done. And the result, look at the result. It says that the disciples were worshiping him. See, I think that's what happened on this day in Leviticus 9. Aaron's hands dripping with blood that would temporarily forgive them. I think the nation rejoice. And let me go just a little farther. I was talking to some of the pastors about this week as I was studying this. Because I get all excited, i got to tell somebody. And Gina gets tired of hearing me every day about it. So i got to find somebody else who will listen to me. Think about the great gatherings of Israel when they're walking with God. And you haven't been to tabernacle, you haven't been to temple in a long time, and you're coming from Naphtali, and you haven't seen your good friends from the Benjamin tribe, but you know you haven't lived perfectly, and you have your lamb with you, and your family's bringing it, and you're going to temple. And there's Asaph in the temple with the choirs, and the priest with the trumpets. And there's the priesthood saying, come, let's, let's meet with God. The Old Testament isn't all doom and gloom, folks. There were great worshipers, and there's great times in the scriptures where the nation just roared over the, the glory and the mercy of Jesus, or, or God the Father, right? All looking forward to Jesus. I mean, man, read, read Chronicles and David and Solomon when they gather and the feast and the thousands of bulls they killed. The nation believed God could, would, they could be right with God at times. And here we are. We're in the, the birth of the sacrificial system in Leviticus 9. And I think there was great joy. I think there was great joy there. Verse 23, Aaron leaves and he goes into the tent of meetings with Moses. And Moses is the representative of God, right? He represents God. He's, he's the mediator, right? And probably what happens in that tent, this is my thoughts, and I think probably most people, the guys I read, 
Moses is maybe going over the different furniture in the holy place and the holy holies and, and showing him where the blood will go for the great day of atonement, Luke 16. And maybe he's going over all that. There's the altar of incense and the preparation of the lamps and the layout of the showbread and the sprinkling of the mercy seat and all of that. And they're in there. And when all that's accomplished, Moses and Aaron come out with their intent to bless the people again. And I think there's a, a remarkable application here. As you look at these two men, we must under, we, we, anyone who wants to be an example, you must attend to the word of God and obey its truth first or you can't bless others. If you want to be a dad who loves your children the way God wants, you've got to be a man of God. You can't. You can't just will them to do that. This is a good lesson for pastors and teachers and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and, and moms and dads and anyone. If you, want, if you want to bless somebody, you have to attend to the word of God yourself. I think the forgetfulness of true biblical principles is the downfall of much Christian work. Too many so-called Christian pastors and leaders have told their churches to live some way and they don't themselves. And the next thing they're on TV with tears going down their eyes talking about some mistress. What a disgrace. And I think at least right now, right now in this text, is, is there's a lot of cleanse people right now. They're right with God. They, they want to do things His way. Oh, i got to finish. Oh my goodness, I'm way over. I'm so... Verse, I thought this was going to be a short sermon because it was a short chapter. In verse 23, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. So they come out of the tent. Here comes the glory of the Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us what this looked like. Was it like the Shekinah glory that filled the temple in Exodus 34? I don't know. Was it like the extraordinary bright light that shined out of the pillar of the cloud of God in Exodus 16 or Numbers 14? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. However... It could be very well have been just the strong presence of God. You know the word glory in Hebrew means weightiness. Maybe that sense of, of God and that you have a right, you, you have the ability to be right with him and have purity. Maybe there's just a weight that fell upon them. I don't know what there was that day, but I'll tell you what, it was overwhelming. In verse 24, look at that. I believe that by sending fire from God, that the fire was from him, right? It wasn't him, but, it, but it's a showing his presence with them, right? And, and, the pre, and the priest was there offering, and the lamb becomes the substitute, and the tabernacle looks forward to a better perfect tabernacle and a better substitute, and all things looking forward to the Lord. But this type of fire, this, this, this is not something man could do, Right? The priest was looking forward to something better. The, the offering was going to be better. The, the tabernacle was going to be better. Everything was going to be greater. And so this fire isn't of man. Moses didn't go, well, let's go out there now and push the lightning button. Man, this is God. And I, when I think what God's doing is I don't want my nation to think that Moses and Aaron did this. I'm going to put on a public display of my power. And I'm present with you. And now you know how I can be present with you. And I'll be with you. And I'll forgive your sins. And I'll crush your enemies. And I'll, I'll walk with you. But you've got to come my way. God seems to do great things like this. To show his presence a lot of places. He shakes ground, right? He causes darkness. He causes lightning. He opens up ground and swallows people. He does this all the time so no one can take credit for him. 
right? He does this all through the Bible. Gideon, he strikes a, a sacrifice with fire. Um, Manoah, um, Samson's father, he offers a sacrifice in Judges 13, strikes with fire. David offers it um, after David takes the census and sins. He, he repents and he builds a, uh, brings a great sacrifice and the Lord consumes that in 1 Chronicles 21, 26. Solomon, after his great prayer and dedication to the temple, 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 7, strikes a sacrifice with fire. Elijah with the prophets of Baal and King Ahaz on Mount Carmel. Bam! First uh, uh, Kings 18. Every one of them is to say, I'm here. <laughs> this isn't of man. And I think that's important. The Bible says the Lord is a consuming fire. John the Baptist said he's coming with a Holy Spirit and with fire. The Spirit manifests his presence. The day of Pentecost, they spoke with tongues of fire, the Bible says. Someday he'll cleanse the earth with fire. And it was with fire that the Lord consumed this burnt offering to show that he was there. He was pleased with what Moses and Aaron had done. And he is a granting atonement to the priest and the people. And look at their responses. We'll finish with this. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The nation had witnessed a supernatural event. Supernatural in that, some, that God can forgive. That's supernatural. Even the Pharisees said, who can forgive sins but God? When Jesus said, I forgive your sins to the paralytic. Supernatural, isn't it? But then all of a sudden this lightning strike or fire or whatever it was that consumed this altar, they saw this and they shouted. And I don't know, maybe it was just an outburst of unrehearsed praise to God. Right? We've all been outside when a lightning bolt hits close to God. Everybody goes, whoa! I think this was more a worshipful, whoa! Because a lot of them saw that in Exodus chapter 34 when the Shekinah glory filled the temple. And they hadn't seen that since they fell into sin. And I think it was just an overwhelming expression of gratitude towards God. And notice they also hit their faces to the ground. And this is the result of reconciliation. When our sins are forgiven, brothers and sisters, we fall to the ground, don't we? The word itself means that they touch their faces to the ground. There's times, sometimes, maybe you have been struggling with sin. Have you ever got alone and put your face on the ground before God in an act of submission in your closet to say, God, I'm a sinner. I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness for my sins. I know you accomplished that in Jesus Christ. It's a humbling position, isn't it? And that's where they're at. They've humbled themselves before God. The nation is right. When Jesus rode in on that great triumphal entry and the Pharisees were mocking him because the people were praising him, he says, if they don't do it, the rocks and the hills will. We're built for praise, aren't we? And our sins are forgiven. There's no greater group of people who praise. This is a deep, profound, deep respect for what God was doing. And this was an incredible day. The sacrificial system has been installed. There is a way to God. His special revelation is now with them. And the goal of the sacrificial system was to encounter and have fellowship with God. The goal of the Lord, the Lord Jesus' final lamb, final sacrifice, was allow us to have an eternal encounter with God and be forgiven. And all this was pointing towards it. I got to quit. I got another page or two, but we'll get on it next week. Father, uh, thank you for the book of Leviticus. I ask your forgiveness for so many years. I read and read and read through it and only saw glimpses. 
But Lord, I thank you that you've let me see the glory of your son through the book of Leviticus. I pray that my brothers and sisters who sit here before me or watch at home, that they're overwhelmed with the beauty and glory of Jesus, that he could take wretches like us and allow us into his internal presence forever. We praise you, Lord. We praise you that you have forgiven us past, present, and future sins. And now we, like this nation, can shout for joy. And we can fall on our faces in honor and respect and humility to our God who rescued us. Lord, thank you. May we sleep well knowing we've been forgiven. Lord, if there's anyone here who is struggling with deep, abiding sin, I pray that you would expose that today. Don't let them go away feeling the weight or being under that weight of unrepentant sin, Lord. You have provided a way. We can all be right. And Lord, I, I pray that you would give grace for the consequences of sin. Some have great consequences because of their sin. Lord, give them grace. Show them that you're gracious in the consequences so they too can shout and fall on their face before a God who loves us so. Lord, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.